You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. She shook her head, but not as in no, as in shaking her head free of the thought. She turned more pages, dusky black paper with delicate photo corners holding the pictures in place. And she pointed out relatives I hadn't met, or Dad's dad who died before I was born, holding a napkin to his face like a cowboy. The day grew darker outside, and the whitish sheer dress provided us light on the pages. I looked at the people and grunted in response as if I'd moved on, but I was still caught back in pages before. My mother looked for signs all the time. A person would be curt to her at the supermarket, and she would view it as a sign that she should be nicer to strangers. Joseph would give her an unexpected smile, and she'd retrace all her actions to see why she deserved it. Once we'd arrived home to a snail at the doorstep, and she said it was a sign to slow down, and she took a walk around the block at a funereal pace, saying there was something in there for her if she could just take her time. She came back just as vivid-faced as ever. Thank you, little snail, she buzzed, lifting it up and placing it in the cool shadows of a jasmine bush. She was always looking for unexpected guidance, and at that garage sale the world had spit up just exactly what she'd asked for, and what could be a better omen than that? So it must have been a real blow on her wedding day to find out that the larger hand in action was the hand she was then holding. Amy Bender is the author of the short story collections The Girl in the Flammable Skirt and Willful Creatures and the novel An Invisible Sign of My Own. Her new novel is The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake. Thank you for joining me, Amy. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Amy, this is a a lovely portrait of the supernatural in a very suburban and subdued setting. Talk about the Los Angeles that you create? Because it's not this busy, super um, pressurized city that we see in in other fiction about this uh, landscape. Uh, I think, well, I'm I'm from L.A. and I I live there now. So I think there was some part of me that wanted to have a, a very daily L.A., the L.A. of kind of daily driving to and fro and going to the market and going to the mailbox. Um... So so this L.A. I think is kind of smaller and quieter and people drive around a few streets here and there and there are trees. But it isn't, yeah, it isn't that larger than life L.A. of the movies or, or certain books too where it feels like Sunset Strip or um, Santa Monica or the beach. But instead just, yeah, the more ordinary parts of L.A., which is, of course, in my mind, the bulk of L.A. It's a lovely portrait of the suburbs and also a, a portrait of a somewhat average family. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a there's an interesting twist that this uh, family has. It it first we first see it in a nine year old Rose. Tell us about what what Rose experiences at the very beginning of this book. So the book starts out and she. Um is comes home and her mom's making her basically a practice birthday cake. And when she tastes it and it's the cake she asked for and everything that she wanted, but she, it comes with a kind of new um, barrage of feelings and feelings she kind of knows intuitively are connected to her mother. So a cake that that tastes good also 
basically tastes like she describes it like it has a hole in it, like there's something hollow inside it. And it completely freaks her out because here is something she's expecting to be really delightful, and it's um, the opposite. Well, <clears throat> one of the things that this book made me think about was a, a, <clears throat> a book uh, about uh, synesthesia. And I was wondering if you had read about synesthesia or thought about it as you created this novel. I didn't think about it directly, but I, I really love the whole concept and idea of synesthesia, a word I have trouble saying. <laughs> but, um, uh, and, and I love talking to people who I know they can see numbers as colors or letters of the alphabet in colors. Um, and I also really love the Oliver Sacks books, which don't, you know, they'll sometimes address the synesthesia um, directly or similar kinds of things where the brain will play tricks on you and something will, uh, there'll be a combination. I think often people will be hearing music, like symphonies all day long or, um, um, kind of, you know, interpreting political arguments in different ways uh, based on their uh, meter for truth-telling. So so I love those stories. And, and so I think there's something about combining senses in unusual ways that, that I just find interesting. I don't have it, but I kind of uh, am curious about it when people do. Now, you create a, a wonderful family here. <clears throat> and one of the things that I like about this book is the way we get to know the family, um, the prose, be- the, your prose style becomes, you know, richer as your character becomes more experienced, and it's very subtle and beautifully done. Mm. Talk about creating the prose for this novel. Did you write this just from beginning to end, or was there some kind of? Did you have to go back and finesse it? It was. It was a. It's a good question because it actually was uh, kind of in chunks is the way I would describe it, that there was an initial burst that I had in discovering this idea about her tasting feelings in food and then the whole exploration of what that would mean for a little kid. And then I think I kind of hovered. It was almost like I was hovering at that point. It was about page 90 for a while because I knew that the book needed to go somewhere other than food. I felt like food was a thread, but it wasn't the whole arc of the book. And I didn't know where yet. So I did my kind of usual wandering, which means I write a lot of pages that get cut, but then to kind of move around and think, you know, who else is in this household with her? You know, she's discovering things about her family by the food. She has this brother. She has these two parents. Um, What can I find out about them? So I think as then I was going, I started to learn things too. And it was sort of like um, sifting through the layers of the family structure. Well, one of the things I think is really wonderful about this book is that it makes us think about the difference between inside and outside and, and how we re- what we reve- choose to reveal and how what we don't choose to reveal shapes us in, in ways. So uh, this is a, a lovely way of exploring this because you explore it from the perspective of a girl who has not yet really come to encompass this her inside and outside are the same. Right. Yeah. So, so talk about the creating the, the 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 perspective here is really fascinating, and I think the prose may be simple and the characters' perceptions are simple, but the construction is rich and very very complicated. Thank you. I'm really glad. And um, yeah, I guess it's that, and I love what you say about the inside and the outside because. Um, I think that's exactly right, that there's something, there's sort of a crisis in her of discovering that there are things going on internally in the people that she loves that are shocking to her and that maybe those people don't even know. And I think the crash 
for a kid of realizing um, the fallibility of one's parents and realizing, okay, um, they don't they don't know everything that's going on, even within themselves. And so um, I guess there's a crucial piece to me, which was that not only is she tasting feelings in food, she's often tasting the feelings people aren't aware of at that moment. So then um, there's just this whole subterranean world, you know, that... And I'm the daughter of a psychoanalyst, so I mean, this is where it kind of plays out of just that feeling, like what, what's governing our actions, and and like you say, for a kid, I think there's so much about um, you you expect things to make much more sense than they end up truly making. I think there is a a very understandable longing for things to just be what they are, and and so she really, I think, part of what drove her character for me was the idea that she would. Um, she was too young, actually, to kind of have that uh, realization. Kind of came upon her all at once. So, so in terms of the prose, it's not. I'm not kind of consciously changing it, but I was aware that that as things were getting more complicated, maybe I think it would show up in the language in a certain way, or it might be a little more simple at the beginning, and then, yeah, maybe start to get more complicated and sometimes even more fragmented as she was figuring out what was happening with other members of her family. Well, one of the things that's so wonderful about this book is that it's a compelling, gripping read. But what we're gripped by isn't necessarily like fistfights or <clears throat> explosions or gunfights or any of that. It's the discovery of the emotional cores of these characters. Mm. And, and where we're talking about how <clears throat> Rose, at first at least, is the same on the inside as she is on the outside. But once she realizes that she can taste other people's emotions, she all of a sudden has to become like them and conceal part of herself. And it's a really lovely twist. That's a great point because I think that's true. And maybe that's a part of growing up too is that we start to become aware of our own uh, inner life and inner world. And that at a certain point she has to contend with that a little bit too. Uh, But I think that's right. She has to conceal it. She sort of tries, but not that hard. She tries a little bit to put it out there. No one wants to take her up on it. But um, she's also not a character who would forcefully, you know, take a stand and stand on a soapbox and say, this is what's happening. You know, she kind of puts out little feelers and then withdraws. So so I think, um, yeah, I it's just it's true that then that her process is, I think, then looking into herself as well. Now. This is really, if we strip away all the superb characterization, the the wonderful character arcs, and the great evocation of time and place, this is a supernatural novel. Great, it's good, and it's about a it's about a girl with a psychic power. I mean, this is I've explained to people. I think this is Carrie. With well-adjusted parents, <laughs> I love that. I love that who, idea. who have solvable problems that don't involve buckets of blood. Right, right. She's in sort of shut in her room, and you know her mother's yelling at her. Uh, now, I, I'm wondering if you would uh, talk about uh, one of the things you do really well in here is make this power of hers as sensible. You, you you explore it because it's not just emotions she can taste. She can taste the whole history of the food, can't she? She can. I mean, she has this kind of, um, I think what happens is that she starts to develop the ability to taste other things in the food that are are less painful than tasting other people's emotions. So instead, she starts to track things like food routes and food histories and all that. But that um, is all in the food for her too, but but is easier, I think, to, to 
deal with. So I think that's one of the things she develops um, in a kind of compensatory way, in a certain way. And then there's a kind of shift in the book to her brother, too, and um, I think her access to him and his own strange power and all that. So so I think there's something about um, how she's developing hers and also how she's becoming aware of other people in the family alongside her. Well, one of the things that I really love is that the way you plant a lot of stuff, you front load this book with a lot of really interesting hints oh, as good. to what's going to happen, and they all pay off very nicely but very subtly. Oh, good. <clears throat> and that's one of the real powers of this book is that it it's convincing and we believe that these things can happen and we care about the people that they happen to because you uh, are a master of understatement. Well, thank you. I'm so glad. I'm really glad because it's, I mean, the thing with any kind of hint is I always feel worried about overhinting. And, you know, I think there was that point I remember um, watching shows with my dad. Um, like we would watch, you know, Murder, She Wrote or something like that. And and he always knew uh, who had done it. Like he, you know, he had the adult skills to figure out the plot and I was a little kid and I felt like how did he do that how did he know those things and then you start to realize that you know we we absorb so many stories and all of that that we all kind of are good predictors so I think I wanted to put out little hints but then keep things really understated as I was exploring what was going to happen and so hopefully that wouldn't be um, an immediate line to knowing you know to keep someone surprised well the other thing I really love about this book is how normal these people are. I mean, and this is a this is a really important. We do not see many entertaining, gripping, and, and fun-to-read portraits of normal people. You are talking about watching Murder, She Wrote with your dad. And, I mean, I admit it, I, I, I watched one of my favorite <laughs> things was to watch TV with my kids, and I remember watching Get Smart with my dad. Exactly. So, so yeah. these kind of little normal rituals you make them into something that develops the character but also um in, you know engages the reader yeah it's i mean i think um and it is particularly true i think if it, it's true for any kind of writing but maybe it's particularly true if there's anything strange going on or otherworldly in some way that um the daily details are extra important and maybe that's the same thing we were talking about with los angeles too which is that because la is so over the top uh, people forget that it's a city where people go to the market and, you know, mow their lawn. I guess they don't, you know, <laughs> it, whatever whatever they're doing, get their landscaped lawn with cacti that they don't have to mow. But um, <laughs> but all, um, all these kind of ordinary parts and in the same way, you know, watching TV in my mind has a strong place in books of American households because, of course, it's happening pretty much everywhere. Though now I guess it's starting to shift to computers and Hulu. But... But still, um, that ordinariness feels crucial. One of the things I think that's, <clears throat> I think, really interesting in, in this book is the the revelations uh, of the the character dynamics, the family dynamics, the the mother daughter relationships, the mother son relationships, and the father daughter. Now let let's talk a little bit about Joseph. He's an interesting character when we when we first meet him. He's his mother has always thought of him as a genius. Yeah, she she kind of um, looks up to him and maybe kind of looked up to him the minute he was born. And and 
felt a wisdom from him that I guess I'll think is, you know, both coming from her love for him, but also was putting a lot on a little baby. You know, that feeling of his, you know, him emanating a certain kind of um, leadership to her. Uh, so that she and and he's very very smart and but she really feels like he is a genius. And, and there's his expectations too. When you say somebody's a genius, that there's a you create a you can turn somebody almost I guess into a a, a vacuum by with their, your expectations that they feel necessary to fill. Yeah, no, a vacuum is the perfect word. I think that there's almost a um, concave shape that I think gets created out of that. Uh, the largeness of that longing, you know, the shapes fit, that instead of whatever two equal shapes, one shape kind of pushes into the other. Now, their relationship is a little bit creepy. Yeah, good, (laughs) good. No, I'm glad. It should be, yeah. Didn't that make you kind of uncomfortable to write about that? Can I ask, do do you have children? I don't, but I I want to, so (laughs) it's something, you know, it's something that is on my mind. Um, But yeah, their relationship is creepy. And I did feel, I didn't enjoy writing about that. It felt like the right balance of their relationship, but it bothered me too. Like I felt upset by it. Um, and I felt, yeah, just that um, I think sometimes her feeling of his guidance seemed so out of balance in some way with him. Um, but I think that does happen. Like I just think there there is something about... Um, trying to see someone you're so close to as just this separate other person that I think is a challenge. Well, you know, that's the the way this is handled in this book is so superb and I think you do this again and again in this book is in a in a situation that could go over the top and take this into kind of either cliched territory or, you know, really pulpy territory. And this is no, there is not a shred of pulp in this novel. <laughs> uh, maybe somewhat at the core, but it's fully. <laughs> at the core, it has a pulpy heart, which yeah, would be great. It does. And, and, but <laughs> you, you've grown a real actual family. Talk about, you know, this. we talked a little bit about your understatement. How hard was it for you to ratchet back and say, oh, no, 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 I can't go there. I can't go there. Well, I want to. Did you ever want to really just go, okay. Now come the buckets of blood. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're coming from the ceiling. You know, it's almost the opposite for me, which is that um, I think I have such a fear of doing that that I can understate. I can too understate. I can under understate where then the thing doesn't get played out or the scene doesn't get played out. And something that felt that I was trying to do a, a little differently in this book was to stay in scenes maybe a little longer than I had before and to let things play out and let people push on each other a little bit more, even though it's still really understated. Um, so so I think uh, it's the same way I kind of feel about short stories, because short stories um, can tend towards understatement, too, because they'll just end or things are less explained. Um, and so, I, yeah, so I guess there was less of a, I think there was more of a worry. Am I overstating this? Am I overstating this? So it's good to hear that it comes across well, what as understated. The, now, <laughs> you, you do have some scenes in here that are, straight out of, uh, in many ways, your your spin on the classic supernatural fiction scene. Yeah. You know, the power discovery and the power testing scenes. Yeah. So I'm wondering how much um, supernatural fiction you read or even thought about or movies. Where, where, how did you inform yourself out of this? I mean, I think I have. I have read a fair amount, a um, bunch as a kid and movies. And I, I think I love that 
sort of superhero narrative in comic books and um, the whole X-Men phenomenon. And in, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of a book. But it seems like there's so many um, certain kind of children's books where there'll be some kind of power that gets discovered. I remember the book Half Magic where they discover a magical coin and every wish is uh, given to them half. So they and they don't know what it means. So they have to figure out and they have to figure out how to double it. And just the pleasure of watching that be be figured out. And um, my friend, the writer Glenn David Gold, has a great teaching comment where he says, "If you want to show a machine in a novel, first show it broken, because then you have to go through the step by step of understanding how that machine works." So maybe there's something in that. If if you're going to show a power. First, you know, you can show it as something that is not understood. So then the character, the writer, and the reader are all figuring out the parameters as it goes along. Well, this novel is also a lovely novel of identity. And you talked about uh, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the characters befriends Rose and, and asks who, who doesn't know herself. So she uses Rose as a means to get to know herself, which I thought was a great kind of way to, and then once I read, read that, I thought, well, that's kind of echoing through, throughout this novel. Hmm. Right, of how do we know ourselves and who do we look to and how do we find that out and all of that, and that she has kind of access to other people, but she doesn't have that much access to herself or when is she going to eat something that she made. Um, yeah, I think it is it is a theme throughout, that knowing, knowing people and not knowing uh, and how that relates to, to love and being loved uh, how those two intertwine. You know, when you love someone and you know them versus you love them and you don't know them. Well, there's that, There's a lot of not knowing Joseph. Yeah. And, and there's yeah. A, he's loved by all his family. Yeah. So, so talk about the, the, the father-son dynamic, which is, I think, really fascinating in this book. It's, I mean, he's, they, they, I think, circle around each other almost um, as planets maybe orbiting but not quite connecting the father isn't sure what to do with joseph i think he just doesn't know and joseph is one of these you know extremely internal kids who you know really likes science and is in his room a lot and and the father is on the surface um kind of a regular guy and so there's just this disconnect um and i i was uh reading and listening i listened to it on tape of into the wild the crack hour book where you have the kid who wants to go into the wild and is this sort of very sensitive kid and a father or just parents, you get glimpses that he was kind of a misunderstood figure in that family too, but then kind of goes away in this profound way and ends up being, you know, a really sad way. But but so I think with the father-son dynamic, there's maybe just that feeling of um, who is this person, you know, who is this son, who is this father, I love discovering the father. This is one of the real pleasures of this book, as I said. is This is a, a novel where <clears throat> a lot of the plot revolves around our understanding and revealing the characters, the character arc, the advancement of the character arc. And the father uh, is, one of, is one of these great characters that we, we like him all the way through. And, and as we get to know him, it really is, I think— an astonishing kind of revelation, a pleasurable reading revelation. I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I think that's part of my process, too, is sort of discovering who are these people and and knowing certain things about them but not knowing why, and then hopefully through the course of shaping the novel, f- 
figuring out, you know, what what else do I know? And that to to think of a novel as a kind of unpeeling. So I, I'm really glad for what you say, too, that it's not you move along, you feel pulled in, but um, maybe for different reasons. Because that's my hope is that there's enough in there to keep someone reading along. But you never know. So it's good to hear. Well, well the, <laughs> the, the, the mystery of, of <clears throat> how these kind of different powers will play out is is really fascinating. Now, um, when you started this book, did you know how did you how much of the end did you know, and how much did did you discover, and how much did what you wrote along the way change what happened at the end? Um, it was I did not know, so it was I was kind of in the dark. And um, there's this kind of crucial scene with the brother, and I won't talk about it too much in detail because it's you know no it's one of the great pleasures of the novel (laughs) but so just to say that I didn't know where it was going and I kind of tried a few different routes and then when I hit upon what I thought was happening um, it was really sad to me like I had a strong reaction to it and I had to sit with that for weeks to think I can't tell if this is going to come across to another person reading the book. Like, I don't know what to do with the scene. I remember um, shopping with my mom, and and I was trying to describe it really abstractly and say, you know, what should I do? And she's just very good about the creative process and her saying, you know, just kind of sit with it. And then that ended up, I think once I decided that it was really important to the book and maybe central to the book, then the rest of the book um, was in some ways a response to, to that scene. So... Um, so I think then it wasn't planned, but it, yeah, it started to feel like a domino effect, I guess. You know, one of the things you do really well is the uncanny. Oh, thank you. It, 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 so, and that's a difficult uh, terrain to 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 uh, traverse because you have to you want to keep things mysterious, but you have to show us enough. Um, so, how much um, of the horrifying background do you have in your mind and how much how do you ratchet that back to give us uh, that kind of tension between something that looks every day and something that looks kind of frighteningly weird I guess it's I mean it really feels like it's um, there isn't a whole backstory that I have so much that I'm leaning on but it's more uh, going almost sentence by sentence and trying to follow the sentences that feel true um, or that feel like I want to read them. They're, they're, I was trying to describe this to a student recently, which is that the way I'll read student work is you can kind of feel as you're reading along a student's story which sentences feel right on the page and which feel like filler. And it's and then to say the ones that feel like they're earned or they just kind of have an authority to them, that's where I think the writer should go. So then in reading my own stuff, I'll be going through it and... Um, in that scene, it was kind of seeing, well, I would take a wrong turn, and then I would go back to where it felt like it made sense again, and then I would move forward. And then it started to feel like, oh, I think I know what's happening. And then um, that was, I guess, um, maybe where that balance between the ordinary and hopefully the uncanny. I love that word. I mean, it's such a... Well, it's it's Freud's greatest contribution to the language, yeah, I think. it is an incredible word, <clears throat> yeah. Now... <laughs> You know, it strikes me when you're describing your writing process and, and that your writing process is quite a bit like uh, Rose's power, hmm. uh, that you are discovering the emotions, the true emotions at the core of your story. I mean, I think there is something about 
writing that is a kind of digging around and it's just it's that it's making it up so it's like I'm I'm just trying to make up what I can but but I guess there is something in that process that um Writing is your discovery. psychic power. Right. <laughs> it is, really. <laughs> when I think of someone I admire a lot, like Haruki Murakami, who I think, um, you know, speaking of the sense of the uncanny, is just so great at at slowly taking his time and building up a moment that you reach the end of the moment and you think, wow, what happened? What was that? And I just feel really inspired by that um, and kind of want to try to emulate it in my own way. As much as this is a book of emotions and characters, it's also a, a, a great story. And story plays a part both in the overall architecture, but also um, there are stories within the stories. So, ta- And stories are important to the characters. There's one point where the, the father uh, becomes interested because all of a sudden the, the, the element of narrative enters the situation. Yeah, yeah. They're at a driving lesson mm-hmm. and uh... – and she started trying to communicate with him. She's a teenager at that point, and they're kind of in an awkward father-daughter stage, and he's kind of trying to reach out to her. So she makes up a story about a kid at school, um, but he doesn't know that it's made up. But, uh, yeah, and that he gets pulled in in the same way that this idea of storytelling can, can open up the characters too. Now, um, <clears throat> you also uh, – one of the things I think that really good writing does is it – becomes like a faux memories for for the reader. Oh, that's great. That that you can in a great book you can go back and visit the scenes as if you had lived through them mm. and and that your access to uh the experience of a of a great reading experience is similar to your access of regular experience. They they've entered this nebulous world of memories and you know the <clears throat> one might be a word doc file and the other is a, an Excel spreadsheet right. file, but they both look, they're both <laughs> files as far as you're concerned. So talk about, um, you know, getting into your reader's memories. Do, do you, when you're writing these stories, how much do you, like, um, how much pre-processing do you do? I mean, is it all just discovering as you write, or, do, or are you, like, kind of living these lives in your mind? I guess it's um, and it's it's nice to hear you say that because I can think of you know many books for me too when I'll look back on the books it does or the books themselves feel like friends or like a J.D. Salinger book I'll feel like I know those people and I think that's the pleasure of J.D. Salinger is you know he feels like everybody's friend Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but so I would say um, I guess I guess it's I'm just thinking, thinking. Um, but I think there, it's for me. The main thing is if I can try to stay in the moment and follow the scene where it naturally goes. And I guess what happens is there are there are many, many, many wrong turns, and there are many pages that get cut. But the hope is that if I can uh, write a scene that feels um, connected and I'm discovering it, that that is the kind of scene hopefully that will resonate with a reader and stick with a reader. And that um, it's all these questions of worrying about kind of how's the plot going or how's the character going or how's the tone going, letting all those things go and just trying to get very involved and invested in the moment. Like I was um, talking at a class the other day and, and someone was saying, how do you 
pick what details to put into a scene? How do you know? Like Raymond Carver was so good at at picking details and one of his characters wore turquoise jewelry and that's the way we see her and it just kind of clicks her into place. But but I think sometimes it can get in our way if we think, well, I'm going to think up a detail and plop it in the scene and it's very conscious and it's very calculated as opposed to just trying to really get into the scene and then looking around and noticing what's in that scene. And usually in that space, I think then it feels maybe like dreaming while awake or... Um, you know, the surrealists who were talking all about this kind of world of dream life as a way into storytelling and poetry. So so the fact that it would end up in a place of memory seems totally satisfying. Given that, that uh, writing is your X-Men psychic superpower, <laughs> it, it's not surprising, I think, that, that you'd write about food because food is such a powerful part of our lives. And, and I think... One of the things that interests me about writing about food and about cooking itself is that it's an opportunity where every single human being gets to create their own little work of art, mm. and then it's finished and done, and then you eat it. Exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> and in this way, it's such the opposite of writing, which is so verbal and like ongoing and murky. What I love about cooking, too, is that exact thing. It's temporary. It's sensory. Um, everything has different shape and texture. You cut a tomato with a different knife than you cut celery. I mean, all of that stuff. Um, I love that. I love that. Very, very uh, tactile and sensory. Well, talk about uh, writing that, writing about that, because it strikes me that in choosing this particular power, you've done so um, in a sense because it gives you those kind of shortcuts to the emotions. We all know that smell is the most powerful evoker of emotions. Right, right. No, exactly. That, um, And I think the foods that we eat are really attached to often memories or feelings. You know, Proust had a fine point. <laughs> <laughs> so so to, to track those things, um, you know, I think we could each think of foods that come with a feeling of comfort, you know, or I'll go find matzo ball soup and eat it in a crappy can and it still will make me feel comforted because of my grandmother's matzo ball soup that was so good that was much better but it's kind of like a shadow echo of that um, or a perfect piece of pizza or whatever so um, so yeah I think food comes with all sorts of impressions and meanings and is loaded up and I guess I just like the idea of thinking about being nourished what what feels nourishing you know um <clears throat> the world is stranger than we can know. It, and one of the things I love about this this book is it has all sorts of uh, Fordian uh, influences. It, 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 I'm speaking now of Charles Fort, who was the man who first cataloged uh, reigns of fish, and uh, he was one of the first people to uh, write about mm. strange objects in the sky and uh, weird disappearances. Wow. And so I, I think that, th- that this book... Um, really touches on some key Fordian themes. And I'm wondering if you've read like about books about uh, disappearances or um, because there's a there's a that's one of the big themes of Fordian studies is people who mysteriously disappear. Um, There are are, also lots of uh, uh, food related uh, Fordian uh, things as well. Yeah. Yes. um, There's a lot of, uh, you know, odd tastes, smells, odors. Uh, Think of the the maple syrup odor over New York. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, that was so great. It was so fun to hear about that, you know, and everyone. And also how wonderful it would be. And then suddenly 
not good. And do you know at Disneyland's um, City Walk, they pump in the smell of maple syrup because it makes people feel, I guess, like buying things. <laughs> so it's just there's something insidious about that. You know, here's maple syrup. In New York, at least, it was it was like a factory glitch, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I remember also reading um, obsessively as a kid those books of lists where they would have, you know, lists, the Wallace um it would just be the book of lists, the book of lists two, the book of lists three, but they would often have strange occurrences. They would have basic other, you know, kind of ordinary lists, and then they would have, you know, top ten disappearances in American history, top ten things, strange things that fell from the sky, top ten, whatever. And then they would have these paragraph um, descriptions, and they were great. I think they were so great. Um, so there's something about that sense of finding the strange events. Or I just read Big Machine, Victor Laval's book, which is a Really, mm-hmm. really cool book, and there's a point in it where people are just scouring through newspapers looking for odd events, and how those you know pop up and what we do with them. And you know, there's so many crazy things happening in the news that it starts to feel otherworldly really fast. Now, um, <clears throat> one of the things I, I like about this book too is the way you capture. Um, the tidy untidiness of life mm-hmm. that they this family has a life that looks fair you know nobody acts out particularly badly but there's right. all sorts of fairly you know deep and strange emotions churning underneath yet they manage to keep it together and, and live a, a a relatively agreeable life it's i guess it's that um clash between both that the, clearly that they care about each other but also a lot of unspoken stuff or isolation within each person so that they're kind of not acting out but they're retreating a little bit and at the same time there there's a kind of sweetness between the characters who are just obvious care for each other so i think yeah which is it's good and bad you know now um, we also have characters in here who who acquire forbidden knowledge, um, and this is this is an interesting theme because um, it, it's now a lot easier to acquire forbidden knowledge. I mean, in a world full of electronic surveillance and email and Twitter and tweets and all these things, I mean, the opportunities to to see or experience something that you should not see or experience increase. And I love this idea that in the way you develop it is, I think, really unique. I think it's true what you're saying, which is that there's opportunities now everywhere. But that also, um, yeah, what are the knowledges we have and inside or things that we notice that we don't want to notice or, um, you know, Little pishers have big ears. Isn't that the saying? (laughs) (laughs) That kids are kind of absorbing things all the time and how are they processing it? But, but yeah, I think you're right. I was looking with my nephew on the Internet at a kind of joke site and he was like, that's not appropriate and that's not appropriate and that's not appropriate. But it was like he was flipping by them, finding other things that were appropriate. But, But, boy, there was a lot of stuff that was, you know, completely out of his reach. And he seemed to be, you know, skipping right over it effectively. Now, uh, this is a, a really nice novel that has, you know, the feel and heft of a, of a novel arc, which is not always, uh, you know, you do a, write a lot of short stories. Well, what made this story become a novel? I think um, with stories, it almost, they, it's, it's, it's almost like the path is, 
is a different shape or something that that when this voice came in or this idea about the food I knew that it would take many pages to explore the food and then I also kind of felt like there was going to be more to say after that so it's something about voice I think because there's a um or, or situation I think often with stories I'll put the character in a situation and play out the situation and then it'll end and this felt like it was a situation maybe that came more um from the characters and like you're saying this kind of narrative of what happens with the power how do we figure out the power the sort of superhero storyline um so that took a while to explore and and kind of pushed it into novel land now what are you working on now and now i think i'm i'm kind of just starting to work on stories again so it is it's a keep thinking it's like uh, jeans where you wear your jeans and they get kind of loose and then you wash them and they're a little tight. So everything feels out of sorts, like the size and the shape is a little strange, but trying to settle back into the shorter form. I've been speaking with Amy Bender. Her new novel is The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake. Thank you for speaking with me, Amy. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.